Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. Today we're back in the podcast studio and I've got a special guest for our audience today coming to us all the way from the North Shore of Boston, not that far from us here in Connecticut, but coming to us via Zoom as we do most of our podcasts these days. Survivor, pancreatic cancer survivor and breast cancer survivor, going to make sure to make that note, Kelly Bradbury. Kelly, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to today well, um, telling my story and in, in, in the hopes of helping other people you know, that might've gone through similar experiences in the journey. Well, as we were talking before the podcast, I know that's going to happen. Um, and I don't say that arrogantly, but you know, th this podcast is, we're going on almost four years, um, just to give us a, a quick little plug here, which we, we normally don't do, but, uh, over the four years, it's pretty amazing how many people have connected with others throughout the world, um, with regards to their fight and what they've done. And that's really what this podcast is about. So I always, you know, we bring a variety of guests onto the podcast from survivors to clinicians, to athletes, to participants, and people from all walks of life, quite frankly, that are doing some great things in the world today to shine a light. As we know that, you know, with all the craziness that's happened in the world, we love spreading positivity and bringing positivity to the world. And so um, it really is, uh, it's special to have you on. I know we connected via social media, as I've said in the past, social media can be very toxic, especially yep. now. Uh, but I have found some really, really amazing friends via social media that have gone down this road of pancreatic cancer, you included. So, uh, so thanks for being our guest here at the Project Purple Podcast. Here's your opportunity as we turn it over to our guests to share kind of your journey. And, and what I always say to our guests, Kelly, is you can always go as far back as you want. You can mm -hmm. stay as high level as you want. And with that, the mic is yours to share your journey and how you got here uh, with your journey with pancreatic cancer. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I am going to go back just a little bit because there's a couple of things that have helped me um, get through this, my, my, this recent journey with pancreatic cancer. Um, 20 years ago at 38 years old, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I did catch it very early, but that was because 20 years earlier than that, my mom had had it. So, and her sister. So I was actually able to start baselining at 26. And so there was a definite you know, you could go for a mammogram every year. Insurance didn't give me any hassle about it because of the family history. And so I felt a little bit protected. There was something that I could do to watch for that. So I got it. Now my mother had invasive. I caught it early. I had DCIS, which was still in the ducts. It didn't, hadn't gone invasive yet. And at the time um, I was dealing with the local hospital at the time. I, really wanted to, I live so close to Boston um, that I wanted a second opinion. To be honest with you, I did not like the on, the uh, removal surgeon. I loved my plastic surgeon. Um, and I don't know, call it bedside manner. It was, I, I can remember leaving the appointment that day going, oh, I don't really have cancer. <laughs> but it was just, you know, a shock. I don't think I wanted to believe at the time. But my kids were seven and 15. And I, like we discussed, I wanted to see these milestones in their life. 
what proms and graduations and engagements and weddings and grandchildren. And so I chose to do a bilateral mastectomy. Insurance was okay with that. Um, I wanted to be proactive. That is just my personality trait. I was afraid, but I wasn't. I just, there was a very short period of time that I missed from work through all of that. I didn't, I never cried for myself. I never said, why me? I just wanted to get rid of the cancer and, and move on, which is what I did for 20 years. Never thought about it for another minute. Um, there were certain things that people would do. Um, rallies were a big, huge breast cancer rally. I can remember I was in real estate, my real estate friends donated their time. It was a 24 hour rally and they would work as a team and they would walk for me and raise money. And then at the end of that, I had to show up and I had to go into the middle of the, um, of the track at the local school. And then we had to walk around the track because that's who they were walking for and running for. And I can remember walking around and feeling like all eyes on me. And I said that I didn't like that. But at the time I just didn't like you know, I didn't like that feeling. And I can remember saying to people like, I was glad I got cancer. People are looking at me like I had 10 heads. So like, what do you mean? You're glad you got cancer. And I said, well, it made me a better person. It made me stop and smell the roses. It made me a better wife, a better sister, a better mother, a better, because I, I stopped, you know, you know, I was just so into work that I kind of forgot about that, what I went through. So 20 years goes by, I wasn't even thinking about anything. And then I started developing some stomach issues. Um, I hadn't really been to a doctor in a, in a while for some personal reasons, but um, I've never been a sick person. So when this started with pancreatic cancer, uh, it was just stomach issues. I, I would eat and I'd feel really ill it progressed. So this whole process was over like an eight month period um, that it got to the point where I was feeling it. It was a come and a go. And then it was being more consistent. And then it started to affect every time I ate, I would get sick from that. I was losing weight. So I decided I got a primary, um, a, a PC. Um, and I had decided at the time I wanted everybody that I, whatever doctors I was going to use, was going to be at Mass General. They had saved my sister's life five years ago. She was uh, 45 years old. She had an acute aortic dissection um, that left her paralyzed from the waist down. And but they saved her life. So I knew that that's where I wanted to go. So I found a primary care. Uh, we started with blood work you know, the first rounds of everything, everything came back great. There was nothing, you know, other than I had the stomach issue. And so she suggested I see a gastro, a GI gastrointestinal specialist. Okay. Um, that was Dr. Molly Thomas. I went to Molly and, you know, she put me on some reflux medication. She put me on a couple other medications. Um, it was, they really weren't working, you know, still having these, these uh, symptoms and one of the biggest symptoms I had was that my stomach was getting more and more distended. And of course, you know, the internet, what the internet does, you go to the first thing on the internet and I'm thinking and reading, it could be hormones. It could be this, it could be that. It's like all this stuff. And you go, oh, okay. Cause you're not thinking cancer. So I, I was like, oh, it could be that, you know? So after about 
three weeks on the medication. I called Molly back and I'm like, Molly, this still isn't working. I don't know what we should do. She sent me in for um, a stomach emptying test. What that showed is when you show up in the morning, um, they feed you a couple of eggs, a couple of pieces of toast, some uh, juice. And then what they do is they take um, images of your abdomen and your stomach before you eat and for every hour while you eat for five hours. So you have to be there for the five hours and that's what they did. What that test showed was that my stomach was not emptying at all. I had I had what they originally um, diagnosed me with is gastroparesis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's, um, if you Google it, it's a, a disease. There's no cure for it. There is a medication that's kind of works, kind of doesn't called Reglin. So she put me on the Reglin. I went and that was a horrible feeling. So here I am, I'm thinking I have this gastroparesis that has no cure. You just have to kind of live with it. And your stomach just does not process the food, which was causing the pain, which was causing the vomiting. So I was, I was actually a little depressed about that. Um, about three weeks into that diagnosis, I called her back and I said, it's that medication is just not working. And uh, Mass General being a teaching hospital, it's not like your doctor can call up and say, well, I want to do this test, that test, She that you go to the emergency room. So on May 17th, I drove myself to the hospital and actually left the hospital until the weekend before the 4th of July. So I spent about six weeks in the hospital. When I first got there that night, uh, of course, they run a bunch of tests, blood work, all this kind of stuff. Um, I did have some high blood pressure issues going on. I was a little, I was overweight. Um, I do have a stressful job. So I was kind of dealing with those on the side. We got those under control. It then became my stomach just wasn't cooperating. So the lat, they did um, an endoscopy after CAT scan, after MRI, after x-rays of the chest and the stomach and all that. And at that point, that's when they did the biopsy. And I can remember sitting in my room. Um, they have the patient gateway. And I, you know, read that I have invasive cancer before they even came in to talk to me. So and did you go, when you said the patient gateway so that you're able to log into online, so did you see something pop up on your phone or? In your, yeah, I had been checking it constantly. I was waiting and- uh, Which most doctors tell you not to do. <laughs> correct. <laughs> but I'm not that kind of person. I know, I know. Um, and I have, my sister has been very instrumental with me. She's, we're completely different. She loves the medical part. She's super smart. Yeah. So she would actually follow. I gave her all my logins and she could go and read the test results and stuff like that. Cause that part of it, not that it bored me at all, but I just didn't want to know. Yeah. So but I didn't cry. I, I kind of went in that moment when I think back to that, I remember it was a sunny day. I was sitting in my bed in the hospital bed. And I was like, oh my God, I have pancreatic cancer. And then I Google pancreatic cancer because I didn't even know what I hadn't Googled it prior to that because I never, you know, I don't I didn't know anybody who had it. So then when I went and Googled pancreatic cancer and I started reading all of the statistics that I could find online, that's when it kind of sunk into me like, 
this isn't like the breast cancer where you're going to cut it out. You're, this is bad stuff. Um, not too long after I read the report, a whole team came into my room. And the first thing I said, just sitting there, and I kind of put up my hands and I said, I already know I have pancreatic cancer. They were very positive. Mm. Um, my surgeon who I believe saved my life, um, Motaz Kadan, um, he was instrumental in my mindset because I was afraid. I had a few statistics for him and a couple of questions for him, but he told me, we've caught this early enough that we can treat you and we feel very confident that we can give you a long life. And I 100%, I just clung to that and I believed it. Um, He told me that I was a candidate for the Whipple surgery, which I had no idea what a Whipple surgery was. So I, he had done a, he had done a, um, like a video on the Whipple surgery. So I immediately went to that and just kind of read everything about what it was and how it was. And it was all very medical. It didn't, again, it didn't tell you how you're going to feel after it. Mm -hmm. I just knew it was a difficult surgery and it was hard. Now, most people, what they like you to do is, and I think I read, I listened to one of your previous podcasts. They like you to do the chemo and the radiation prior to the Whipple, and then you have the Whipple, and then you follow up with just some lasting chemo and radiation. For me, what I found out for, through the emergency room, through this whole thing, my stomach stayed 25 centimeters. I had two and a half liters of fluid in my stomach. So two things had to happen before the Whipple. So I was diagnosed. I found out on May 24th that I had the cancer. I had to wait till June 2nd for my Whipple. One was to get, I was malnourished because I had been getting sick and had lost some weight. The second reason was that um, I, they needed time for my stomach to get, you know, to feel better because it was so distended. Um, and that should have been a huge clue to me. In hindsight, I think I waited too long and let the stomach get to that point mm-hmm. by ignoring like what is going on and, and saying that it's hormones when it really wasn't. So I had to wait that amount of time. And he said, for you, we, we need to get you the Whipple first, then you'll go in and do to do chemo. the chemo and radiation, but it's a lot harder on your system to do the chemo and the radiation after a major surgery. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it between six and eight weeks. And your body's still healing. Yeah. I can tell you I wasn't healed. Yeah. Yeah. I still had my, even my incision was still open at that point. Yeah. Um, I did, I was able to get in-home care. So I went, um, I live with my significant other, but we had decided he works full time and all of that stuff. So, and my parent, both my parents are still alive. My mother who's had cancer twice, breast cancer, and she got colon cancer. She's going to be 83 years old in April. God bless her. (laughs) Two cancers, do you know? So, and that's part of my story. Like I had that hope because I my mother lived. So 
there's no reason for me to not to believe that that could happen to me. But if, if I were somebody else and that experience hadn't happened, how would I know that it was possible? I'm here to tell people that it is possible. And Kelly, you you went through this in 21, right? Like from a time standpoint or when you started to go, your treatments were through 21, Mm-hmm. But did you get sick in 20? So May of 20? No. Oh, so this was all May, May of 21. This is all May. Wow. So then now you're going through this, just so our audience, I mean, this is through COVID. Oh, right? yeah. So we, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, we're not that far from Boston. So yeah. I know the restrictions here were pretty tight in terms of no guests. You get dropped off or you get brought in an ambulance and no one else is coming in with you. So you've got to kind of digest this yourself. As you were saying, like your sister had all the passwords, but there's no one in the room sitting with you, holding your hand or consulting with you other than yourself. Yeah. Right. Crazy. No. And it is crazy. And, you know, the COVID thing, um, I've been for, it's been, it's, it it eventually infiltrated my inner circle, but I never got it. So I was very lucky and I couldn't get the vaccine. And um, I do believe in natural immunity personally. Um, But I also was afraid. I was, I was afraid to get the vaccine, but I was afraid not Mm -hmm. to get it. But I definitely knew I didn't want to get it while I was under treatment with chemo and radiation because I felt like my immune system was already compromised. Oh yeah. So I'm still in that. Should I, shouldn't I? Um, But when you think about it, my surgery I just finished treatment on January 11th Yep, and I'm back to work. Like oh. I can't, it, it took a good month for my um, eating to kind of, Yeah. Um, I went from a year ago, I was over 200 pounds down to 138 pounds. Wow. I'd lost a significant amount. I was so, and I did the uh, full Florinox. Yep. Um, I was hospitalized three or four times um, during the chemo, just that sick. Wow. Um, not only stomach sick, but, um, the diarrhea, nobody talks about, I mean, it's kind of, that's, we talked about this is a lot of taboo subjects that come with this. The one thing with pancreatic cancer, and when you have the Whipple and when you go through chemo and even radiation, the diarrhea that you experience is probably one of the worst symptoms other than you feel, you know, you get nauseous, which mm-hmm. I always was, but that was something I wasn't prepared for. I didn't really leave the house at all during my chemo treatments because I was afraid to go anywhere for the, for, you know, if I had, you know, an incident where I couldn't find a bathroom or I had no time to, to even run to one. And that was something that I, I truly wasn't prepared for. Yeah. You know, I, you know, we talked a little bit about subjects before we hit record. And I, I think that's the one thing with cancer, like there's this vulnerability, right? And in particular with pancreatic cancer, right? Because we know the treatments, you know, Florinox is no joke. I mean, a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've had people on the podcast that have, uh, you know, done 40 plus, 60 plus rounds. Um, and then, you know, we've had people that, you know, do one round and it just knocks them out. Um, and, and you mm-hmm. know, the, the frustrating part with that, and, and there's no... There's no right or wrong in either one of those situations. It's just so frustrating, I think, from an awareness standpoint, from an advocacy standpoint, I should say, that science can't tell anyone like how they're going to do 
and they don't know. And and if there's any mm-hmm. doctor listening that knows, then please, by all means, reach out to me. And I'd love to have you on a guest that says, you know, have you on the podcast that says that you know how each individual person's going to react to this. They just don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And it's almost like rolling the dice, right? And so, mm-hmm. but this, this uh, subject of vulnerability, you know, because there, no one does tell you this, right? They probably gave you a pamphlet, you know, and I know yeah. with all the drugs, they give you like the disclosures and all the, the signs and symptoms, but no one ever reads that, right? They're, they're uh-huh. like a three page long Bible, almost like the way the, the writing is done is so small. Um, you know, I think they do that purposely so that no one would read it. But, you know, these are things that uh, I don't, thank you for sharing that. Uh, because mm-hmm. I think people need to be aware of that. Uh, that, that that's what goes on. Um, well, not I, only was it, it's a painful kind of thing, but it was an embarrassing kind of thing, you yeah. know, and it, it's, you know, you, for you to not know when and where, or having a day where, you know, I had to get into a wheelchair just to be brought to my appointment because I was having trouble walking, mm-hmm. you know, um, those were the things that, and just when you can't eat, you feel weak. Yeah, You know, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many meals I have just, it would, it's a, it was a process. I had to think for hours about what I wanted to eat and try to build up that. And then it was a question of, okay, I finally, whether it's a grilled cheese sandwich with tomato soup, or I lived on chicken soup, cream of wheat, yogurt, maybe a banana every now and then those were kind of thing. All my favorite foods I couldn't, I didn't like anymore. So peanut butter, jelly, all that stuff. And I can remember my mom when I, and I, to finish that, I went to live with them while I was recuperating because they retired and, you know, that's what they wanted to do. And thankfully I had that, I had that option. So somebody could watch me all day. I tried to go home, but then I would be really weak and I'd end up back at the hospital and, uh, it just made sense for me to go there. My mom would make me whatever it is I wanted to eat. And then I would literally take one bite and be like, Ugh, I can't eat this. And she'd be like, okay, she'd dump that in the trash and say, do you want me to make you this? Or do you want me to make you that? And it was just very frustrating not being able to to eat. That was probably, that's another hard thing that you just don't know how you're going to feel. And by the way, I was on a platform on Facebook that's called Whipple Warriors that I would read. And, you know, just I would, for the longest time, I just kind of read the story. I just read what everyone was writing. I didn't interact with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to interact with my good stories. I, I definitely resonated with the positive story versus the sad stories. That's just me. The sad stories, when they would go into detail, scared me. You know, I didn't want to, you know, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Like I can remember, you know, thinking, I hope this doesn't happen to me. Um, So I felt like I needed to start responding with the positive stuff about it. Yeah, you're going to, but it does. I I couldn't for the longest time see the light at the end of the tunnel until I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And I didn't believe it then, but then now I can say there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you know. Um, What do you think was the, you know, just... I want to talk about that statement you just made. What do you think for you though, was the turning point or the the tipping point for you to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Um, definitely time because once, you know, my surgery was June 2nd, my first chemo treatment was July 30th of 2021, which by the way, was my birthday. <laughs> and 
hell of a way I to celebrate your birthday. This is the start. Like somebody else said, oh, on your birthday, you're going for your first chemo treatment. I looked at it as this is my new beginning. It's a rebirth. This is going to be the new me. So I took, you know, my birthday is being, I'll never forget my first chemo treatment day or date because it was on my birthday. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny too, because this can, it is such a long journey. There are a lot of funny things along the way too. You know, like my first chemo treatment, my sister took me, uh, they gave me a shot of whatever they said it was. She said it was kind of like a Benadryl. I forget the name of the, the medication it was. And, uh, she gave it to me and she said, it doesn't stay in your system all that long. So, but it helps with helps with the medication. So I said, yeah, sure. Well, I don't know what it was, but I literally could not talk. My tongue wouldn't work. And I'm trying to explain to my sister, like what's going on and that I can't talk. And I was dizzy and she's like, oh my God, like, what did they give her? And she's on her phone Googling the drug that they got. And she's like, is this normal? And then the nurse comes in and then the nurse is like, oh, you only have like 10 minutes left. And I'm thinking, and then you can walk out of here. And I'm like, I can't even lift my head off the recliner. What do you think I'm going to be walking out of here in 10 minutes? I don't think so. So there were, there were some parts of it that were funny for me that, you know, you just have to chuckle at it. And I, Love those times when that happened because, you know, it's, it's hard. I'm not going to lie to people having pancreatic cancer and the treatment that you go through is really hard, but if you stick with it and you listen to your doctors and you pay attention to your body, um, that's where your survival is going to come in. That's where I put up with all of that because I wanted, I had this will that I want to live another 20 or 25 years, 30 years, God willing. Um, there were, there were times when I've read people say I had to quit. I couldn't take it anymore. And there were days that I said, I just like, how am I going to get to my next appointment? I only had two good days in between chemo treatments. You know, I would get it on Friday, have it disconnected on Sunday. And for the whole next week, I was still nauseous, vomiting, all of that stuff. And really, I didn't start feeling better till Wednesday. I got a good Thursday and Friday, I was back, back at, at it. it yeah. So, you know, that was just me. And so they were, and then each, wow, my first appointment, I only got seven left. Wow. I only have six left. Wow. I only have. And then it's like, woohoo, I got, I'm halfway there. You know, that those were the hard days. The radiation was, it, it was difficult. Like there was, there are some, not as, not as hard as the chemo. That was for six weeks, Monday through Friday, every day. And then to help the radiation, they do give you a little chemo. So I would have, um, they would put a um, chemo bag on me from Monday through Friday. And so I would get the weekends off. It wasn't as strong, but it was mm -hmm. definitely there. So, but that time compared to the chemo seemed much shorter because it was every day. Yeah. But Every I, when I finished chemo, when July 11th came and then uh, July 12th, the next day, and I didn't have to go like that next couple of weeks, it's, you're kind of like, what am I going to do today? It's like, I'm done with everything, you know? And meanwhile, I hadn't been, I hadn't done any work at all. Maybe some phone work for my job, but 
Um, I hadn't gone into the office. I hadn't done anything. So now it's like, okay, what do I, what do I do now? Yeah. You feel kind of, I felt kind of lost and I felt like I had to kind of start over and you don't really realize how much time has gone by. Like when I started this in May, May 17th, and it's now February when you kind of back to, you know, my new normal, that's what I call it. My new normals. Um, that's a long time. My breast cancer took, you know, basically six weeks. I just had to recover physically. I never saw an oncologist. I never had to go on. I never, I didn't have to do chemo. I didn't have to do radiation. I didn't do any of that stuff. Um, I think they offered me tamoxifen at the time. Um, I knew of a family member that had gone on that and had lost their eyesight. So I was afraid mm-hmm. to go on the tamoxifen and I decided I'd just take my chances. I wasn't too worried about not taking tamoxifen. Um, and then 20 years later, you know, with this, I think that ha- I've never heard of pancreatic cancer. I didn't know anybody of it and come to find out that pancreatic cancer is one of the, there's a reason why they call it the silent one, because it, for, for a lot of people, it's, um, there's really nothing that they can do it. It gone to an advanced stage. Um, I listened to my body or I paid attention to my body and I wasn't accepting that I was okay. I still knew something was wrong. So the only advice I could give people is just, if you don't feel right, call your doctor. Like I have a girlfriend that just posted on Facebook, um, that she has gastroparesis Hmm. and I immediately messaged her and I said, Hey, I was also diagnosed with that, but it was a false diagnosis. I actually, that's how I came to find out my pancreatic cancer. Have you, what have you done to rule it out? You get tested for that to find out maybe it could be that. Yeah. So I'm more afraid and and very vocal to people that I think it's like, and, and here's the other thing. My family is very afraid of getting pancreatic cancer because we do know it runs in families. Well, with your family history and that that's one of my questions here. Um, and I just wanted to jump in here quickly with that since we're on that point with the family. So you mentioned your mom and aunt had cancer, um, you having breast cancer. I do know that now back in 2019, 2018, genetic testing became a requirement, um, for anyone who's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, given that you went to mass general hospital, I'm sure that's one of the first things they did. And what did the genetic testing come back? Did it say anything that they found anything or was it just inconclusive? Yeah, it hasn't come back yet. What they did, I saw them right away. And what I gave them authorization to do is that all of the blood work that mm-hmm. I, I have done even now, um, they have access, full access to it. And I have to schedule, I'm waiting for them to get back to me, but I have to schedule an appointment, which they recommend, like my parents can sit in yeah. on that meeting because they would have past cancers in the yep. family that I might not be aware about. Like I just found out my dad's sister had breast cancer. I had no idea. Um, So they didn't do genetic testing right when you got the the cancer, when you were. uh, I did when I did, I did after my uh, breast cancer, my mom didn't do it. She was more afraid. She didn't understand what it was. I think Um, I did not carry the BRCA gene Hmm. and I had done that for my, for my daughter. Yeah because it would have allowed her to do baselining at a much earlier age. So um, 
I knew I didn't have that. I got to imagine. Came time- no, I, I was going to say, I got to imagine, given your family history of what you just have described, given mm-hmm. your history, there's going to be some researcher there up at Mass General Hospital that's going to want to look and do a deeper dive into your family, uh, yes. potentially for... Um, you know, something that maybe, and this is the, the good part is that we have genetic testing. The bad part is that this is, you know, what you're describing. I'm sure there's plenty of families out there in similar shoes that, um, you know, there's not a BRCA significance. There's not a gene that they've identified, but there's something under the hood, as I say, that science just hasn't identified. And that's the scary part, right? Like when we start to think about like familial cancers and these cancer clusters within families, um, you know, and you don't find anything. And, and we've had plenty of interaction with families throughout the years here at Project Purple where similarly they've done genetic testing and, you know, they're not positive for BRCA, but, you know, they have pancreatic cancer, they have colon cancer, they have breast cancer, they have lymphoma, you know, they have all these solid mass tumor cancers, but genetic testing is saying we don't see anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's frustrating, right? Because like, you know, I, I think as a society, we, we are a society of wanting all the answers, right? And, and, and right. when you don't have all the answers and potentially you can see kind of there's a pattern and there's a history mm-hmm. of these things happening, but we don't know why, um, is, is super frustrating. But I wish that you could just go and take a blood test and know whether you're susceptible to this or not. Just or like in the in the breast cancer, there's a mammogram that you could have, yeah. and then there's you know, with pancreatic cancer, it's in a really tough spot, and they just don't have that luxury. Even from the CAT scans that I had early on, it was still they still weren't a hundred percent sure. Yeah, um, they thought they might have seen something, but then you know, then when they really went in looking for it, was when they found it. Yeah. But I had to have that test done again just to 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 Make get sure. the biopsy that yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, it's super frustrating that we don't have an early detection protocol. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's lots of groups and we've helped funded a couple of groups that, um, and I say groups in terms of uh, clinicians and scientists to try to come up with an early detection protocol. Um you know, the answer to that question is the million dollar, it's probably the billion dollar question, the billion dollar answer, because yeah. it's a lot of um, money that has to be put towards the science. And that's the, you know, I've said it here on the podcast before, you know, the reason why the disease is as bad as it is, is because there's not a lot of funding in it. And that's what we're hoping mm-hmm. to change. And, and you know, the one thing though, that we can change is amplifying awareness. So going back to your, you know, discovery of the disease, you know, having that distended belly, um, and stomach and realizing like, Hey, this is not going away and being Mm -hmm. your, your biggest self-advocate in the sense of keep Mm -hmm. pushing, pushing, pushing was so important Mm -hmm. in your path and your journey here. Um, I, I have a question on that. So when you said, so this was like an eight month period where just eating just didn't. So were you during that time, just like you would have like a normal meal and then, you know, you would just bloat thereafter. Were you trying to like eliminate foods or were like doctors telling you like, Hey, maybe it was like a gluten, you know, gluten intolerance or, you know, cause like, yeah. I think now today, like, you know, like there's so much happening with our food supply in a bad mm-hmm. way, I feel sometimes because, you know, I was just talking to our printer yesterday. I went down to pick up some printing. And similarly, 
in the sense that he lost like a hundred pounds. I think he said 120 pounds in a year. Mm -hmm. Now he got salmonella poisoning, was in the hospital for a month with salmonella. Come to find out, they did all this testing. He's like allergic to like 30 different foods. And one oh of them, goodness. one of them being gluten. And so now he's like, you know, now, and, and it's crazy. I was talking to him for, you know, um, couple minutes and he was saying like just his joints now because he's not eating any gluten he can like close his hands he was having a hard time close his hands before mm -hmm. and so it's just so fascinating why I bring that up is just because diet you know now there's such a you know it seems like our diet like that I remember growing up there was that pyramid right the, the nutrition pyramid yeah. right yeah. but it seems to change like pr pretty pretty much on an annual basis now right and yeah. what what foods are acceptable what foods aren't acceptable um you know eat less red meat like I've heard over the last like three months, like red meat's bad for you and you got to eat more grains and you got to go to like a plant-based diet and, you know, eliminate all the red meat and eliminate chicken, you know, but, you know, three years ago is all about red meat and chicken, you know, getting enough protein and, and not necessarily uh -huh. worrying about anything, you know, whole grain carbs, you know, eat whole grains. So during that time was just like, cause you know, Having a, 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 you know, a distended stomach is not necessarily like one of the, and I say, here we go, air quotes, as I do on the podcast, a common sim sign or symptom that you normally would hear. Like, it's not like lower back pain, the, the digestive issues we've heard before, like going, like having massive diarrhea and not being able to digest, um, yep. you know chronic back pain or abdominal pain, the losing of weight we've heard, right? Cause people, you know, have gone on like strict diets or they just change their, uh, their mm -hmm. lifestyle bit and lose, you know, weight, but they lose an exorbitant amount of weight and they feel like mm -hmm. they think like, oh, wow, my diet's like really kicking in my exercise really kicking in. And then they find out they have pancreatic cancer. So, well, I had a I had a crazy schedule for work too. So I was started my uh, a new business, and I was really only eating kind of one meal a day. Like I would work all day long, and not really have time to eat. And I know that sounds crazy, and people say you got to make time to eat, but I it just wasn't. So I would kind of um, have a little breakfast, no lunch, and then you know I'm starving for dinner. So it two things that I was worried about. Number one, from the breast cancer, I had um, a tummy, well, they take the stomach fat. So yep. you have kind of a, um, a tummy tuck basically. Yep. So I have like this kind of line across from hip bone to hip bone that there's, I, I always say, I always laugh that I have two different stomachs, you know, I have the upper and the lower. So this uh, stomach bloating was the upper part, which is not typically normal. Yeah. And then when I started losing the weight, but the bloating, I still, I wasn't losing that bloating. That's when I started to get nervous and scared that something else was going on. Because if I was losing weight and I wasn't able to eat, I was, should have lost it everywhere, everywhere which yeah. I could definitely, yeah. But I still had kind of like a, an inner tube around my upper stomach. So, so for like my rib cage. Rib cage to my belly button, say. So I had that going on. And that's when um, I was like, you know, I really got to get to the doctor because this isn't yeah. normal. Um, and that's when I started going through all of the 
uh, test with my GI doctor. And then it was just a process of elimination. You call my cold. I had a colonoscopy. That was fine. I had an upper and lower GI. Those are fine. And then I had the uh, endoscopy. I think I'm saying it correctly, but I had the endoscopy. I've had three of those until the, until the last one, when they actually did the biopsy Biopsy, and actually find where they wanted to, where they wanted to take the tissue samples from. Um, I also had three lymph nodes out of 18 lymph nodes that were involved. Um, that made me the candidate and it was on the large vessel, the small vessel and the peri peri vessel, they call it. Um, which was why the chemo and radiation were very important to make sure they got all of it. it, So, and that's right. So that's why I, you know, just went through all of that. Some of the other symptoms, like, um, they all kind of, you know, they all, you can read of what symptoms you could get from it. The longstanding ones for me were um, what I'm dealing with now. I did end up losing most of my hair, which they said it would thin. So Mm -hmm. some people, I didn't expect that I was going to have to shave my head, but I did because I was bald in one spot, but longer on the other spot. So, you know, hence away, you know, I went and got away. That was an weird thing to have. I didn't, you know, I thought I could just wear a hat for a couple of months and be done with it, but that's not the reality of it. Yeah. Um, I was, I was okay with it. Um, I joke a lot. I have a pretty good sense of humor. I bought a wig that has uh, roots. And as I'm driving down the highway back, I was going to have breakfast with my parents. I was laughing because of the thousands of dollars that I have spent trying to not have roots, roots. I order my great way with. Roots. So that was like a chuckle moment for me. Like, and that just alleviated the whole thing. Um, I do have, um, um, oh my God, I lost my train of, not my train of thought, the word um, neuropathy. neurosis, neuropathy, that's neuropathy. it yep. in my feet, in my hands. It's mostly painful at night, but my extremities are always very cold. cold. Um, I did get, through my treatment, I got three blood clots. I got one in my lung, one in my stomach and one in my leg. So I'm on Eliquis um, for that. The lung one went away pretty, probably the first one, which is, I was thankful for that, the leg one after that. And then I still had, um, I still had the one in my stomach. So that was something else I wasn't aware of. Those were like uh, 911 calls after blood. I've already gone home and now I got, you know, you got to get back here right now. We got to give you, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, My magnesium has been affected. Um, I've had to uh, more than double my strength on my um, milligrams on that because it's like the same thing. I got a 911 call. I've been averaging around 1.7, which is normal. Um, I was at 1.0, which then can lead to heart issues. So mm-hmm. um, those are the things that I've just kind of had to deal with after the fact. Um, they don't have any good answers for me of when it's going to go away. I am on medication for it and we'll just have to wait and see. I just attributed that, you know, my life will never be, I have to get used to my new stuff. Um, especially after the Whipple. So I think in the, at the end of the day, I think that the, the chemo and the radiation symptoms will go away, but I'll always have forever um, from the Whipple. 
And I had a very positive outcome with my Whipple. When I got out of surgery, the one thing I, and I, back, you talked about COVID, my family, I have a very involved family, brothers, sisters, parents, kids, um, and I could only have one visitor a day. Now, I will say that they were all fighting over who was going to come in and see me. But I can tell you that if nobody came to see me, I would be okay. Because that was kind of a struggle. Like, I can remember my dad coming and spending like six hours for me and I was exhausted. <laughs> but that made him feel good. So I wasn't going to tell, right? Uh, my mother didn't like going to the hospital at all because she hated elevators. And so she would make up and I was like, mom, I'm okay if you don't come in, you know? Um, so I would say that if... Oh God, I did just lose my brain, my, my thought. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> with, with the family visiting and, and the post oh, yeah, yeah. stuff. So the and- day of my surgery, what I did was there was a hotel that was within walking distance to the hospital. So um, I rented a suite and my family left their house at like, I think I had to be down in the operating room at 6.30 in the morning. My family got up at like 4.30 in the morning. They all went to the hospital and they waited all day for the surgery to be done. So when the, when uh, Dr. Kadan called, he was able to speak to the family, my whole family, and tell them how the surgery went, everything that was involved, because I, of course, I didn't, I didn't remember any of that. And that was something I wanted to do for my family. They were upset with me for doing that, but you know, I had the food delivered. I kind of pre-thought about Mm -hmm. that. And um, that made me feel good because I, you know, I was taken care of and part of my journey was just feeling really guilty. Like I, that I needed their help and what they all told me and what I had to really, really understand is that they wanted, that made them feel good which is another reason why I want to give back to anyone out there that's suffering from pancreatic cancer or um, I have nobody to go to, to ask questions about it. Cause I don't know anybody who has it, you know, but I feel like it's becoming more prevalent today, like a lot more. I would answer that as when you're in it, you find it everywhere. When you're not in it, you don't. And a very similar experience, Kelly, for me, like, I think I knew about like Michael Landon when my dad was diagnosed and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Steve Jobs, of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this is going back 12 years, uh, no, 13 years. But then once we were in it, it was almost like a magnet um, where you you hear about it more and more. And, And naturally though, I think, the other piece of that now fast forward 13 years there's a lot more groups there's a lot more advocacy there's been you know some higher profile people that have had the disease alex trebek and ruth bader ginsburg just to name two um mm-hmm. and just in the past couple of years that have been really uh, of note and I, I think the awareness um has increased dramatically you know cases are going up but you know that the frustrating thing and this is from an advocacy standpoint you know it's still considered because of the numbers a rare cancer, um, you know, it's 62,000 people in the United States where you look at breast cancers, you know, 200 and I think 70,000 people, yeah. you know, that's a big difference. So, um, you know, sometimes that could be a good thing and a bad thing. And and so mm-hmm. w- for you in terms of how you fought it, and, and that's one of my questions here that I have for you, you know, you said when you got the breast cancer, you were 38, 
you had the two kids, you know, that was the priority, kind of like get rid of the cancer and kind of move on. And you said this experience was was totally different. And I've seen on the podcast over the, the couple of years, you know, people go through experiences in life that prepare them for certain experiences in the future. Now they don't know that, of course, and hindsight's always 2020. Have you ever looked back on the breast cancer or other experiences that you had prior to the pancreatic cancer diagnosis that kind of got you prepared for that? Have you ever um, thought of it that way? No. I, when I think back to to the breast cancer, I never, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to die from it. Like I could, I I didn't think that way. Mm-hmm. When I found out I had the pancreatic cancer, I have to live with the fear and I do live with that fear of dying before I, before I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. There was definitely much more. Well, I didn't think about the will to live with the breast cancer. I think about the will to live with pancreatic cancer. So, and it's, it's different. Now I, I have grandchildren. I have, I actually have four. I went from two to four. <laughs> My daughter had twins and my goal, I was actually going down to live with her for like July, August and September to help her before, during and after Mm -hmm. in her pregnancy. And I got diagnosed in May and my surgery was in June. So I have still yet to meet my grandchildren. My, it's a boy and a girl. I have still yet to meet them. We get to videotape and stuff and they know my voice and my face and all that stuff. But that was profound to me. Like I cried like a baby when she was in um, labor and then delivered them because I couldn't be there with her. Mm. Um, That's all I wanted to do at the time. So things are much more important to me. And I didn't, you know, with breast cancer, there's not a lot you can do with breast cancer. I just had to kind of recoup from it. Pancreatic, I have to change how I eat. I have to change how I exercise. I have to, I can't even take a sneeze without my stomach hurting Mm. from it. You know, like when I go to take a deep breath in, it hurts. Um, When I go to bed at night, there's a, I have muscle spasms right below the rib cage in the center of my stomach where that muscle is just turning. Uh, That's what I'm being, I'm trying to investigate what that's all about. So I've been back to my GI specialist for that. I'm on a medication. We're going to try, you know, it's, it's happened enough times. It woke me up out of a sound sleep. I thought I was having a heart attack Mm. and it scared me. So I would say I'm a little bit more fearful and I'm not really a dramatic fearful person, but I was, I'm not going to lie. I was really afraid. So and, and if I let myself think too much about it, you can, you can go down. I mean, admitting that I needed therapy again was another huge, um, and I did go on a medication an antidepressant that has really helped me, um, because I needed it. I, it's, it's a very depressing thing. And, and I think that you shouldn't be ashamed to admit it. I didn't at the beginning, I'm kind of like, I was trying to work on it myself. I was, you know, there were days I cried and cried and cried, but I cried because, and I had my sister to help me and my mom, I cried to them without making it a big thing. Um, But I was afraid of dying. 
And, but yet all my doctors were giving me so much hope that I had done all the right things and they really felt 100% confident they got everything. And then, uh, you know, I was going through treatment, but I had to get out of that. I had to be more positive and I can see how it's easy. It's much easier to, to be depressed and kind of wallow in that than it is because it's hard work to stay positive all the time too. But I'm a much better, I could come back to work now because I kind of went over that hurdle. Medication definitely helped. Therapy definitely helped. Um, Mass General also, they were great. They offered uh, their program for pancreatic cancer patients. I could have acupuncture when I was in therapy, no mm-hmm. charge to the, you don't, they don't bill insurance or anything like that. Um, they just offer it. And so you could go for acupuncture care. Um, they were the ones that, uh, the other thing that um, not a lot of people talked about was the medicinal, the marijuana medicinal too. Um, I didn't, I didn't, didn't know anything about it. I mean, I knew it was out there. I actually have a dispensary, like literally I can see from my house too. Well, so it's Massachusetts, I knew it was there. It's Massachusetts but, so you guys are lucky you get them all over the place. Now. Yeah. And, you know, I had somebody say, listen, cause I was having trouble sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always nauseous and they said, listen, just try this. And I tried it yeah. and it actually worked. I could kind of get a little bit of an appetite. So I was like, wow, this is great. So I don't take it every day, but there are some times when I have a hard time sleeping um, from a little bit of pain in my abdomen or, you know, whatever. And it does help me get a good night's sleep. There were days I'm sure, well, you wouldn't know because you haven't had it. There were days when all I did was sleep Mm -hmm. hours upon hours. It was just, I was exhausted, but there were other days that I couldn't sleep. I never knew from one day to the next, how I was going to feel. And now I do. So when we talk about the light at the end of the tunnel, that's why it's easier for me now because I'm uh, consistently feeling better every day, not the up and down roller coaster that you're on when you're in treatment. Um, and I would say get on a, some type of platform where you can either listen like something like this to know that we're real people suffering real um, side effects everybody's treatment, what I found is different. It all starts out the same, but you know, it's, it's really, it has to be customized to you. Um, ask questions. And like for me, if I went to one of the platforms and I was reading something that really scared me or I didn't like, shut it down. Powerful, powerful advice. And, and that's a, a great, I, I've got a couple of questions here left for you. And, and this is a great segue to this is, I know you've, you've given out some some great nuggets there and we've never held back. Um, you know, I'm glad that you brought up some topics that, you know, from therapy to um, the medicinal marijuana, because it's not our position here to say what's right, what's what what people should do. Um, this this podcast has always been to share the success of what people have done. So mm-hmm. if someone out there listening hasn't gone down that road, road whether it's been therapy, um, I'm a true believer in therapy. A lot of times people need help and, and there's nothing, there's nothing to be ashamed about that. Like that's a, there's more power in that, you know, that you're able to actually see that you need the assistance and, 
And I, I speak to that in, in so many forms and not just cancer, but, you know, people with substance abuse and, you know, other issues and challenges that they seek assistance. Like there's strength mm-hmm. in that. There's nothing to be ashamed by that. And the fact that, uh, you know, medicinal marijuana, I mean, there we've had people on the, the podcast that have done, um, you know, marijuana for a long, long time and has made a dramatic improvement in the quality and quantity of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, if you had to pick one, and I know that this is a loaded question, the next two questions are, are loaded questions, I'll say. Okay. What would be your best advice to someone listening right now that just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? What's like the one thing that you would say, like, this is what you should do given your experience and where you came from, Kelly? Mm-hmm. Um, so like you said, everybody is different. So how someone reacts to certain things. I think from if, if you have family support, like if you have a big, huge family, rely on your family and express how you feel. Don't hold it in. If you don't have a large family, I would suggest getting on some type of, um, whether it's Facebook, there's some really good groups out there. Um, I found it extremely important myself. And we talked about this when I first started talking to you. I can remember sitting in my hospital bed and wanting to post on Facebook, not knowing really what to say or whether I even should. And I decided that I wanted, if, if I knew about somebody that I loved or somebody I knew, whether it's from high school, my, the street I grew up on, any of that, I would want to send them uh, encouraging words so I, at that point, decided I was going to let everybody know socially uh, my journey. And what I ended up finding out is that, and, and I have like 4,000 friends on Facebook. A lot of it is for my work, you know, mm-hmm. work related, but I, I'm a friendly person and I've reconnected with a lot of people. I could not believe it was so humbling how many people reached out to me, whether they hit the like button or the love button or the care button, but that actually wrote to me that kept me going. So when you got down, you didn't want to disappoint them because they were praying for you. They, they, they wanted to know what was going on. They genuinely cared. So for me, it's just letting everybody know what you're going through. I think that was a huge part because to me, I wasn't, I wasn't in it all by myself. I had so many people that were in it with me and that made me want to work harder beyond my family to be okay. So I feel like that's the most important part beyond the doctors and stuff like that. I think just letting people know what you're going through so they could offer you the prayers and the support and the love that made me feel better. Powerful. And not alone. It's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Last question here, and then we're going to give our audience an opportunity to find where to connect with you. But before we get there, mm-hmm. and again, this is a loaded question. There's no okay. right or wrong answer to this question, but what is your definition of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Hmm. Um. 
I got to think about my words for a minute. Um, I think pancreatic cancer is a horrible disease that it, it's been life-changing for me. It's really been life-changing. Um, you know, do you know, it's, I still get scared all the time. What I have found through pancreatic cancer though, is that, um, I can survive it, that I'm one of the lucky ones to catch it early. I had a, a great medical team supporting me and, and helping me through the process. And I had a great family and friends team. So I shouldn't be afraid, but I still do get afraid. The reason why I feel now I want to give back is because I did survive. I have survived pancreatic cancer. I am in remission and I have a long haul. I have CAT scans and blood work every three months for three years. And then every six months for two years, this doesn't go away. I'll, uh, I will always have to worry about it coming back, but my medical team has, they are, we have treatments if you get it back. So I feel from feeling desperate when I first found out or, or I can't even say desperate because I, I didn't understand what I had completely until I started reading about it completely. But I went from, oh, my God, how am I ever going to survive this to saying to you today and to the audience that I did survive. And my sister has said it. My kids have said it. People have said it to me. And, and I, I, I look at them and say, I, I'm so happy you feel that way. But they were like, I don't know if I could have done it. You are so strong. You have to be strong. I'm not going to sugarcoat it that way. But you have to look, there's a much bigger picture. And much like the breast cancer, I didn't cry and feel sorry for myself that I got it. I looked at it and say, there's a reason why I got it. I don't know the answer right now, but I will someday. Maybe I got this pancreatic cancer. So my family and my, my friends know what to look for by asking me. And that's the biggest question I get, like, what symptoms did you have? And it is different for everybody, but a lot of people ask me that. And for for me, I'm glad I'm able to, you know, I expect on living a really, a really long life, you know, and I don't know that I could have done that without people like yourself and in platforms that I read that re, that resonate with me. Like you resonated with me. I didn't know who you were when you reached out to me, but then of course I do my Google and like I always do. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is a place that I could really get some good information from, you know, when you started this and why you started, I totally get it. And Facebook has done the same thing for me. Um, well, thank, I, thank you for saying that. Um, I am humbled by your comments about me, but um, what you said is pretty profound and very powerful in the sense of, you know, and this is this was the whole idea around this podcast was to share this right and uh -huh. we're amplifying and you know something that you said early on um 
you know, and I don't know if it was caught on the air or not, but, you know, we talked about the statistics and the survivability and how toxic, you know, like that statistical information is on, on the website about this disease. But, and I say this to you and I say this to everyone listening that's going through this, you know, the statistics are 11% for five years, but you're, you're in that 11%. There's nothing in there. I don't see a footnote that says Kelly Bradbury is not part of that 11%. And that's, that's, and that's the message that everyone listening that's fighting this has to take home with them that they, there's no asterisk there that says your name's not listed. And I think that's mm-hmm. us as a, as an advocacy, advocacy group. Um, we have to message that and make sure that people are aware of that. And that's what this uh, podcast hopefully does. Um, you know, the more and more survivors we have on, the more and more people have um, that mindset that they don't, they're not part of that, you know, that group that's mm-hmm. not part of that 11%. Listen, my aunt, do you know, they gave her six months to live, my mother's sister, when she had breast cancer and she lived for 13 years. She had a will to live. My mom, my mom, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, and we think you're gonna, whatever. My mom had incredible will to live. The same thing with me, you have to have that will to want to survive it because you're, like with anything though, you're, how you deal with it is what your outcome is gonna be. You know, if I had a mindset of, oh, my God, I'm probably only going to last a year or two, or I know I'm going to get it back, that that's very draining and negative. And your body reacts to the positive. So find ways to laugh. Like, you know, for me, my wig was a joke (laughs) for me. And hopefully you don't mind I say this, but I remember being at one of my first uh, chemo treatments. (laughs) This is kind of funny. And if, but it's real, it's, it's like, this is what really happened. And, you know, you go in for your treatment on the Friday and they put you in a little room with the recliner and they just have a little cloth, like in a hospital things. And Mm -hmm. there was an older couple, uh, the wife had the cancer and the husband was with her and you, you get very bad gas (laughs) after the whipple and and it's loud and it's whatever. I can't remember sitting there with my sister and it was just like, Oh my God, like, what is that? (laughs) And we will. And I was like, is that going to happen to me until it happened to me? Yeah. And then it was like, I'm carrying around potpourri in my bag. Yeah. Yeah. You got the the bottle of spray. Yeah. Yeah. Sat there, we laughed about it, you know, but it was like, oh my lord. Um, I just went to a 50th birthday party Saturday, last Saturday night for my boyfriend's boss. And, you know, we're at a, a small room and we're at a table of 10 people, and I I I couldn't help it, you know. So I did have to run. And he's looking at me horrified with his wide eyes, and I'm like, I don't know what you want me to do. This is I have no control over this. Yeah. I just had to chuckle at it because it's kind of like, what do you want me to do? You know, I love it. I love um, it. I love but you got to, you know, that's just, that's a reality. You're going to have that happen. Absolutely. But that's the, that's, you know, like you said, the will to live though, like you got to be yeah. willing to accept that and, and continue. Yeah. Like those are small, that's not even a bump in the road, right? Like that's just the will to yeah. live. Like you're going to, that's yeah. just life and you just got to roll with well, it. Well, that's what they say about hope, right? Yeah, exactly. It just, it, I say you have to, to me, having the will is more important than the hope. Yeah. Because the will is an action. And hope and is. And the hope is, 
just a thought. A thought, yeah. You know, so if that helps anybody out there, it's like, you know, if I can survive it, anybody can survive it. It's just like anything. Um, and you will feel better like I do, like to have an appetite and be able to eat what I want when I want has been. And I never thought that was going to happen. I love it. Kelly, um, someone listening at home gets mm-hmm. connected to what you're saying and wants to connect with you. Where's the best place um, if someone wanted to reach out to you that maybe might be going through this and may have a very similar experience? Yep. There's two ways. Um, I'll give you my um, personal Gmail email. So you can always email. It's Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, N-A-N-N, Bradbury, my whole name, um, which is B-R-A-D-B-U-R-Y at gmail.com. And then... I, I use my cell phone for everything. I don't have a problem. It's very public. Uh, 978-479-5586. What I suggest is just text me if you can on that number and let me know um, who you are and what it's regarding. So I'll, it'll kind of stand out to me and then I can call you when it's convenient for you or we can text back and forth initially and, and see about going further. But I don't have a problem anybody calling me or texting me on my cell phone. Um, much like my job, it's kind of like right at the moment, you gotta, you know, either take a call or make a call. And, and um, if somebody's gonna take the time to call me, I'm gonna make the time to uh, respond. Awesome. Yeah. Kelly, thank you for allowing us to share your journey and your will to live and beating pancreatic cancer. It's awesome, inspiring. You're a wonderful person, beautiful soul. And it's been an honor for me to uh, have the opportunity to share your journey. Oh, thank you so much. And if I can ever help in the future, please let me know. We will. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard, feel free to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode. Till next time, please be safe. Thank you for listening. And that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. (laughs) 